0: Welcome to the On The Way podcast. This is Dom Fay, just with a special introduction to this episode. It's a bit different uh, compared to what we've done on the On The Way podcast beforehand. Uh, This episode was actually recorded recently as a live podcast at St. John's Anglican Cathedral in Brisbane Because of that, obviously, the sound quality will be a little bit different to what you're normally used to hearing on the On The Way podcast, but it was a brilliant conversation with Dr. Neil Preston about the Western Dreaming, so we hope you do enjoy it. Also, make sure you do like the On The Way uh, podcast page on Facebook and across social media. That's the best way to stay up to date with our latest podcasts, as well as any information uh, surrounding potential upcoming live podcasts. Uh, We may have another one coming up at some stage this year. So make sure you are liking that page uh, so that you're across the information and can come along uh, if you're interested on the night. We will also have another podcast coming up in a couple of weeks' time uh, with Peter Grester on uh, what's happening to truth in the media and in culture at the moment. Right now, though, enjoy the podcast with Dr Neil Preston, recorded at St John's Cathedral. Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-dualistic uh, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and you can probably hear via the audio of this that it's a little bit different to the usual on the way podcast. Uh, this month we are coming to you live from St John's Cathedral, well, live at time of recording. Anyway, I am joined by Peter Cat and Sue Grimmett. Thank you both for making time. Good to be here. Thank you, Dom. And we find ourselves on a Friday evening in the cathedral. Uh, for the first time with people in front of us presently listening, which is a bit of a treat, isn't it? It's a great treat. Yeah, very much so. So uh, I should say right off the top, we have not done anything like this before on the podcast. So if you're listening to this in the future, it's gone well and it's worked. (laughs) If you're not, I'm deeply apologetic. I've done something wrong along the way, but we'll have a great night here regardless of that. So tonight for our live on the way podcast, we are joined by Dr Neil Preston, who uh, spends most of his time working as an organisational psychologist, but alongside that has spent nearly 15 years speaking publicly in depth on the idea of the Western dreaming, exploring the idea of what the greater narratives that are that hold together uh, Western society, if in fact there are any uh, greater narratives. Neil, thank you uh, so much for making time to join us.
1: Pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, your, your work on this is inspired, I suppose, by the work of a uh, sociologist, John Carroll, who once did ask the question, is the West dying for want of a better story? And, and I suppose that's a good way to frame the conversation we're having um, here on the podcast today, because we are sort of zooming out on our culture to to see, I suppose, the um, phenomenon of the time we're in, the place we're in, how did we get here, and, and what is it that particularly matters to us. I know that on this podcast we often do discuss probably two major themes. The the first of those uh, is what is the meaning of this reality? What what is life? What is faith? What is this all about? And the second is what is the cultural time and context we're currently in and how do those two things interact, I suppose. So to begin with, um, Neil, I might just ask you, uh, why is it so important to consider things like cultural narratives, greater narratives? Why does this actually really matter?
1: I think um, Aboriginal people around the world, um, including our own Aboriginal peoples, know that when you lose your dreaming, you get sick. And um, they know that that the dreaming is part of them and it's part of their storytelling and it's part of their reality. Um, And I, as a Western person, feel that we're getting sick because we've lost our dreaming story. Um, And somehow we need to I think, it, I, you know, John Carroll I think is right, is that we have to retell the stories of our own um, Western origin in order to become, well, there are competing narratives, there's no doubt about it, and also there's the competing narrative that there isn't a narrative, mm. Um, mm. which is a, a very interesting kind of uh, development in our philosophical um, growth that came out of the 60s and 70s and, and really hit its straps in the 80s and 90s and now it's in its full, full flowering, I think, in the postmodern modern post-structuralist um, worldview. That storytelling, I think, as a psychologist, has a direct impact on people's wellbeing. And I find that, w- that Western people don't have a shared narrative that they had once. And that to have a shared narrative is seen as a taboo. Um, there's some even scepticism about whether we should have one. Mm. Um, but I'm not convinced that human beings, what I mean ontologically speaking, which is how we act and move in the world, can actually operate well without them, because I think our Aboriginal brothers and sisters know that without them we get unwell. Mm. That's kind of the... Mm. Yeah, if that's OK, that's
0: Yeah, yeah. So what is it... Uh, what do you think it is about Western culture that makes exploring you know, matters of greater meaning and and greater narratives, what is it that makes it difficult in our current culture? Why is it absent? Why why did it become absent?
1: I think it's around um, subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So the the, the two competing narratives that we have is, if we we take the Judeo-Christian narrative, the Christian narrative that that burst into the Western imagination, if we take Augustine, for instance, that, that. his subjectivity was essentially to be subject to Christ, to be subject to something other than his own subjectivity. Mm. So I'm just thinking about those two books, the Confessions that happened in the fourth century with Augustine, and then the Confessions that was written by Rousseau in this, uh, the 16th century. And he, Rousseau sort of talks back 1,200 years, so to speak, back to Augustine. So Augustine's way out of his problem was to be subject to something other than his own subjectivity. So he talks about this idea of not the extinguishment of desire, which is a Buddhist idea, which is beautiful and true, but to right desire. It's the desire towards God as the ultimate end of our seeking, and that one rests in it. And that the selfhood is actually then relativised and subject to that subjectivity. Rousseau comes along and in the 16th century writes the confessions and he says in the opening, um, I am on a project and the project is myself and I know no other, but this project is going to be me. And like what Gil Bailey said uh, in his book on violence unveiled was that that was catnip to the European imagination. That is that the project of the self was thrown as a, as a gauntlet, so to speak, back to Augustine to say no, It's my own radical subjectivity that I'm going to be subject to. That project has been working on in the Western Dreaming for 400 years. Mm -hmm. And fast forward, we have Instagram. (laughs) So (laughs) that's that performative external self that is the ultimate kind of subjectivity. But there's a problem with it, that when you have that performative external self, it gets entangled in other performative external selves. Mm -hmm. And what gets lost is Augustine's notion of interiority. Mm-hmm. And for me as a psychologist, that lack of interiority is the, the source of where all that the, the sickness is coming from.
0: So, so I guess on a grounded level in, um, in our day-to-day lives in the culture we're in at the moment, because you know most people uh, probably just fall into the lives they've been told to live, don't even think that culture is something you can question. It just is the reality that you're in. So how is this actually, do you think, affecting our day-to-day lives at the moment, this this lack of maybe a greater collective story? Well, then the the thing about
1: radical subjectivity is that you have to come up with your own story. Now, people perceive that, young people perceive that as a great freedom, Mm -hmm. but it's an enormous, ridiculous burden on people. It's so hard to actually create and curate yourself.
2: Mm. And you know, with that idea of dreaming too, it's always a collective dreaming. So using the metaphor of a Western dreaming, it's like we've all been trying to dream alone and you can't dream alone. You can't Mm -hmm. dream
1: alone. So there's this, Mm -hmm. the the radical self project actually, at least for my mind, creates a radical aloneness and what uh, shows up as loneliness. And we see that in all of our institutional mm. structures. And they started to unravel around the late 50s, early 60s. And they've been running a pace. I think we were talking before that all of the volunteer organisations or organisations where people gather, are, mm. even book clubs are mm. uh, reducing in their numbers, not mm. just churches. So there's this retreat into uh, the, the self that has to be radically self-constructed. But human beings are social creatures. And so we we have to relate to others in order for a self to be understood. And the the Christian narrative is a story about radical selfhood that's subject to to God. But the problem with that is it creates a radical humiliation of the false self. Mm. And it's very unpleasant, (laughs) very unpleasant for us to actually undergo, if that makes sense. And that undergoing that ego death is countercultural and always has been. That, that story of the, the death of self and then to follow the Christiform position is always a radical story. And the West uh, buttress up that, uh, that dreaming story of mm-hmm. Christ entering into the Western imagination or the Western imaginary. And how we relate to Christ and how we relate to the Christian story, I think is fundamental to the Western dreaming. It's it's how we relate to this story of the Christ. Hmm. What's happening now is that that story is losing its efficacy, it's losing its power to actually hold and contain the the, the culture. And what's now um, emerging is a more pagan culture. Again, you can see it more happening because I think the underlying psyche of the West is not Christian, it's pagan. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Mm. Is that OK? I'm not talking about, you know, that's not what I'm tr- saying. It's that it's more uh, um, polytheistic, uh, more nature-centred, um, more pa- uh, pantheistic rather than panentheistic, mm. right? It, that's its default position. Mm. Am I making any sense <laughs> here?
3: You are. I think, I think the Christian story is also going to save us, you know, in that I think the old meta-narrative had to die so the new one could come about because the gift, the gift of the postmodern um, realisation that meta-narrative can bind us and destroy us um, has helped us deconstruct the bad bits of the old Christian meta-narrative. So the old meta-narrative used to tell us that women had a place in the order of things because that's the way the story tells us that they were made. Mm. And so postmodernism quite um, rightly rightly critiques that and says, well, actually, that's just a story. If you don't tell that story, you can set women free. Yeah. You can set the slaves free. You can set the, Mm -hmm. and we need to Mm -hmm. also see the last of this meta-narrative die so we can set the planet free. But because we also believe our Mm meta-narrative is about uh, death giving way to new life. I suspect there's a new meta narrative to be discovered, and it's not the postmodern one. I think the postmodern one has um, served its purpose of killing off the toxicity of the way the meta narrative had been shaped mm. so that we can rediscover the new one. Um, but the postmodern meta narrative, which is there is no narrative. Um, shows that there is a narrative, because that's <laughs> what humans are, you know, humans tell stories and always will. And now, we, now we're on this quest, the really urgent quest, to find out what the new Western meta-narrative is. And I, we don't know what it is yet, because we're, we're beginning to tell it, and we're beginning to realise
0: we need to find it, and we need to start looking for it,
3: yeah.
0: Part of the problem, I suppose, Peter might be um, you know, something that Neil touched on earlier, which is that we are in a radically individual mm. society, you know, unprecedented um, mm. in, it, in its scale. Yep. And I suppose any sense of having any collective vision, collective imagination requires us to be collective, yes. requires us to be together. So, how can we find a, before we even get to what the new meta narrative yep. could be, how are we going to go about finding it when we aren't even? Collective to begin with.
3: Well, we but we are more collective than we like to think we are. Um, uh, every every funeral reminds us mm-hmm. that we're the product of our relationships. You, you know, you, you can't do a funeral without people telling the story of how that person has shaped us. Some of the meta narratives that we're playing around with at the moment are things like nationalism. That's a. You know, mm-hmm. a know, um, American exceptionalism is a meta-narrative for that country, and they think it's a, a meta-narrative for the rest of us, and all we, all the rest of us have to do is accept that that is true about America. And so, astra- um, humans, because we are storytellers, you know, Jack Niles says we should be called Homo Narrans, not yeah. Homo Sapiens, because yeah. all we do, you know, we make meaning by telling stories. Um, in as, as the big as the meta-narrative has died away, we've actually started to experiment with all these other very inadequate uh, attempts, but we are actually in the process, I think, of experimenting.
2: Um,
3: And um, popularism is a form of meta-narrative, you know, and so I think we will we will get there in the end. We're going to have to go through Holy Saturday. Now we've talked about that before on the podcast that Holy Saturday in the Western tradition needs to be rediscovered mm. and I think in terms of the development of a meta narrative we're mm. smack bang in the middle of hell. Mm. So as Neil says, you know, Instagram and Facebook create hell for lots of people. I think as a culture we're in holy Saturday mm-hmm. and the great thing that our faith offers us is or faith story is that resurrection mm-hmm. will come and it will take us by surprise early in the dawn it'll come out of the darkness.
0: Yeah. A- alongside I suppose um, the, the individualistic nature which you know we have been discussing there's also the strong rational element of this society which might make some of this hard I, I remember <laughs> I've shared before in the podcast that when I was in primary school, um, the way Indigenous history was taught to us was almost condescending. Mm-hmm. Almost, can you believe that they thought that this is the way to live or that this is the meaning of life? I remember being taught the Dreamtime stories, you know, almost with a look at how wrong they got to yeah, the actual like origin of the world. Almost, yeah. yeah, like like literalism is the only filter. Yeah, you know, we've spoken this before. Literal truth being the only the only metric of value, of accuracy. Mm. Do you think there's gonna need to be a societal shift away from that yep. you know, hyper-literalism to be able to yeah. even explore these mythic ideas?
3: Yeah, the utilitarian meta is gonna have to die because it's not gonna work very well for us. One of, that's one of the big stories we tell at the moment, that things have value because of their utility to us. I mean, mm. That's what's driving the euthanasia debate underneath the surface of it, is that these people have outlasted their usefulness, they feel mm-hmm. useless, it's cheaper to, cheaper for them to choose to die, and it's, that's one of the subtexts in the euthanasia debate.
2: Yeah. I think we believe, though, the lie that we're meant to be self-reliant. Mm. Yes. That, that is Absolutely. quite strong, and so people feel guilty and, and apologetic if they are saying that they're lonely or they're searching for something more, there's that sense of, you are supposed to be able to manage this and to be, find all the resources Mm. within Mm. yourself. And so, yes, I I think we do discover our communal nature when we're at funerals and things, but in the mainstream of the world, there is a sense that that you should just be, just find those resources Mm. here, and that's That's what competent, healthy people do. Mm. Mm.
0: And on top of that, I suppose, the idea that if you get the job and you get the family, and maybe if you're lucky in this culture, you get a house, that that's all you should need. Really, in in the the rational individualistic culture, your life is now, your report card for life is now success, you did it, you should feel fulfilled, you should feel happy, and yet endless people have met that point only to realise but I'm not. But that has yep.
3: not, that has not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not called the Australian dream for, any for right. no reason.
0: Here we go. Yes. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> We've that's been,
2: Australian been dreaming dream. about the... Australian suburban
3: Western, 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 Western Australians, mm-hmm. as in people from the West, not people from Western Australia like yeah. me. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Western view of the dream is to own your own home.
0: Mm. And It's and, and a pretty
3: narrow meta-narrative, but it's... Yeah. But,
0: but it's what we, I suppose, certainly in, in uh, my upbringing in Australia, we're all indoctrinated into, that that's what you do, that mm-hmm. is the meaning of your life, that yep. um, anything bigger than that really, you can yes. give or take if you want to, but it's, it's really the, it's just a bit of fun for a Sunday.
3: It's the narrative of the quiet Australian. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so how is that going to be unpacked? How is that going to be unravelled?
3: It's unravelling now, I think. It's,
1: it's showing up in, in different ways. It's, that's kind of interesting. Um, there's some research about this, the next generation. I think the Z or beyond. These are the kids that are around about 12 to 15. Um, this is probably the first generation that doesn't have the the kind of um, religious participation that previous generations have taken for granted, um, or 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 the religious kind of moral imperative of the Judeo-Christian story as some milieu in which they were exposed to. Um, And they're starting to show increasing signs of anxiety and depression and suicidality, um, which are larger than the previous generations, like the X, Ys and Zs Mm. and the, the, sorry, the X and Ys and the boomers. And they're also having uh, some concern about delayed adulting as well. So there's these sort of delays of individuation and becoming this, you know, the self because they've been protected. And a lot of it's actually mediated by social media. Um, they've actually recognised that the, the change came... Some of the social scientists are saying that the change came actually in September of 2007 or 8, when they lowered the age to become a Facebook um, member to 13. So, my guess is the reason why they've taken the like, you know, the, the, I don't know, the like buttons off Instagram. The the number of
2: likes. We were talking just the other day about how Facebook was removed, you can no longer see the number of likes on your posts. Yeah, and
1: I think it's, um, I think I was mentioning this before. this might sound crazy, but in the 1950s, um, people would advertise uh, cigarettes by saying uh, three out of four doctors prefer Kent cigarettes. Can people <laughs> remember those ads? Right, so your doctor would actually... God, I wasn't alive in right, the 50s. <laughs> uh, My father's telling me about it, right? <laughs> but anyway, the point is, is that your doctor could, could actually um, recommend which uh, cigarettes to smoke. Um, but they didn't sort of see the, the relationship between nicotine causing cancer. Well, I suspect that the, 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 the social media giants actually have found the nicotine in their cancer. It's the like buttons. They actually know that these things are making people really, really ill. Mm. And they're starting to actually take this out so they, they can mitigate any litigations in about 10 to 15 years' time. Yeah, wow. And I know that sounds crazy, but I don't think it's... The neuroscience is becoming clearer and clearer that this stuff isn't healthy. It's not healthy for you. And I think the public regulators are scrambling, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe in 10 or 15 years' time, they'll have warning like you have on cigarettes packets. It's uh, a crazy idea, but I like I that. actually think you're right,
2: because I couldn't work it out. That's why we raised I couldn't work it out, because surely that's where the money is. You can see that's where, that's where the, the drug is coming from, from how many likes, and there must be money there, so why would they go against something? And I think it's the only thing that makes sense. I really like it as yeah. a theory.
1: Yeah, so that, that kind of uh, performative self, the curated self, where the, um, the, the person... Person's understanding of the self is in relation to the affection and esteem that others give. It creates a very, very fragile sense of self. And when that actual performative self is then judged by its peers, mm-hmm. uh, there's no self underneath to hold it. Mm-hmm. And that fragilizes uh, the psyche. And I think that's mm-hmm. really dangerous. And I think mm-hmm. that what shows up is um, a different kind of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. I can do this alone. Mm-hmm. How do I do it alone? I actually imitate my friend who's doing it alone. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the imitation mm-hmm. breaks out. Someone mm-hmm. tattoos an arm and we're off to the races. Yeah. Or whatever it is that we get mm-hmm. entangled in as a sense mm-hmm. of the individual self. Mm-hmm. In fact, is, you know, and it's, it's, That, I think, is what's showing up. I was a research psychologist for 15 years in Fremantle Hospital and saw the large, the large data and I had to get out because I just thought that the secular narrative didn't have the depth mm-hmm necessary to transition the self uh, of what was heading. The the, the project was still about uh, serotonin Mm. and dopamine. And finally, or was it last year or the year before, they've got in the UK a Minister for Loneliness. Mm. They finally made the social determinant Mm. connections with that and mental illness. But when I was a research psychologist for 15 years, it had to be in the brain. It's got to be in the... If we bind the right serotonin receptors, we can all go home. Mm. And that that dreaming story is still very much there, Mm. this um, biological materialist worldview. Mm. If you enter into any metaphysics into these universities, you're going to get... I've tried it. (laughs) You're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. Mm. Any transcendent imperative that speaks beyond a pure materialist worldview Mm. is right against the current Western dreaming. And I call that the god of the the Mm. cracks, not the god of the Mm. gaps.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, in the the final form of the Western Dreaming now is that we're in that hyper-materialist world, that we will find the God spot, you know? Um, In one Western Dreaming lecture that I gave on uh, Fremantle Radio, we talked about, you know, Higgs boson, you know, that $30 Mm. billion experiment.
0: Mm. Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, the Large
1: Hadron Mm. Collider. Mm. And they're Mm. looking for the God Mm. spot, you know? Mm. And my twin brother and I, we were were watching it because we're both, you know, Christians and uh, and there was this great announcement about the Higgs boson, you know, and it was it was this tiny little spark on a on a on a screen, and we burst out laughing, and we thought that's not going to hold us. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to hold us. Is this it? You know, and then the genius of Nick Cave, who knows what's going on, writes Higgs Boson Blues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you know, he knows this is not. He he knows, you know, he was was raised in the Marist brother kind of education. So you've got a pretty healthy existentialist view of the world, I'd suspect. He writes this thing about the Higgs boson blues, you know, is 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 this it? Is it, you know, is this experiment going to actually give us the Western dreaming necessary to hold us when we have to go through a divorce or when a kid gets sick with cancer or what, you, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a, it's a crazy metaphysics. It is a metaphysics, but it's not, it's a, it's a purely physicalist worldview. And so what happens of course is that the God of the cracks gets in, not the gaps, you know, the one that's been disappearing since the enlightenment, mm, mm, mm. but this one little crack will get into that metaphysical brick wall and the whole thing will blow. Yeah. and we're 50 or 100 years away from that and we're back to the races mm-hmm. and they are shoring up the mitre mm-hmm. in the wall mm-hmm. but Christ keeps on peeking through it that's my view because that's the Western dreaming, mm-hmm. and he just really upsets us mm-hmm. and that little light will get through and the whole edifice will crumble and we're, we're back at it again and mm-hmm. there'll be a new midrash around that story that's my, my hope as a Christian, because Christ isn't going away. He
0: yeah. can't. <laughs> you, and you do say that the, the death of Christ on the cross is essentially the founding story of Western society, don't you?
1: Yeah, because we, we, we have to understand about... There are two major sacrificial stories in the West in the Western dreaming. There's the sacrificial story of Socrates and the sacrificial story of Christ, yeah. and they're very similar, but they're slightly different. And they're, where they're different are, are inherently different, right? Because all all processes of rebirth have to come sacrificially, right? So the church had to be sacrificed when Galileo recognised that we, you know, that we don't. You know, the sun doesn't revolve around us, right? Um, and so the church dies as a sacrifice. Now with the Socratic sacrifice, he, he had to drink the hemlock because he was upsetting the youth of Athens, right? And he, he takes it on willingly, very similar to the Christ mm-hmm. story, okay? And uh, the, the, has anyone read, read The Death of Socrates by Plato? It's exquisite. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. It's like reading Christ, you know, it's amazing. And, and Socrates gives an account just before he drinks the hemlock and, you know. Plato leaves actually Athens for a long time after that and mm. creates his own stuff. And mm. here we are, Platonic and Socratic. Yes. Anyway, uh, so he takes this hemlock and dies. Now Christ is also a sacrifice, but there's one big difference between the two sacrifices and it's that um, Pilate who's the uh, governing body of the time rather than the Senate in Greece finds him innocent. So the power of the day, the Roman Empire wants nothing to do with Christ. That's a fundamental difference. So it upends the sacrificial process. Mm. You can't restore order with it. You can't, the scapegoating mechanism starts to break down. That's what Christ does. So with, with the death of Christ on the cross, you can't create culture out of it. So, you know, like with Rene Girard's work is Christianity isn't just another myth, right? Because that's what, that's the common thing that you hear now, that, you know, Christ is a good bloke because he's just another myth. Girard comes in and says, it's the end of myth. Altogether, it's the end of myth-making. And myth-making used to create a coherent a group of people around a sacrifice, but when Christ takes on the sacrificial process but is innocent and found innocent, the actual mechanism itself is exposed. That's the snafu with the devil. He's done. Mm. I remember giving a lecture once about the Chinese, I'm going to get in trouble now, uh, the Chinese are not worried about capitalism, they're worried about Christianity. Because they're worried about Christian personalism, this sense of the self of the Christian, born in the image and likeness of God, and I'm inalienably loved. Full stop, non-negotiable. Mm. That's dynamite in a culture. Yeah, it's absolute dynamite. They're not worried about capitalism; they can appropriate it into their their mechanisms. Ooh. But if you proclaim that you're created in the image of likeness of God and that you're inalienably loved and true and good and beautiful and reflect that image and it's non-negotiable, then that's like kryptonite into a culture and it really disturbs it.
3: But see, that's the part of the Christian narrative that we have to rediscover because certainly the Protestant West has crucified that part of the Judeo-Christian narrative by telling us that we are... uh, um, That's Calvin's term. um, That that we are inherently evil. Oh, right. And and that it's not about being inherently loved. It's actually Mm. being inherently damned. And. Mm rescued from the edge of the precipice by the the Mm. graciousness of God Mm who would otherwise have us destroyed. So we have to rediscover the new... This is why I think think the dying is so important because Mm. I think what happened to the Judeo-Christian meta-narrative is it became quite toxic Mm. and became destructive to people. And Mm. we are rediscovering, Mm. I think, in certain places, we are rediscovering the beauty Mm. of that metanarrative, which is about being loved unconditionally. Mm -hmm. Being unique, uniquely loved, uniquely gifted, uniquely called in a community of uniquely called, uniquely gifted people Mm -hmm. who recognise um, the beauty of gathering together to eat a little bit of bread and drink some wine Mm -hmm. Mm. and to be transformed by that process. Mm. But that's not what you know, that, that, that was not the Christian story that was bouncing around in the 1960s and 70s when I was growing up outside the church. Absolutely. Well, as as the story I was presented as an adolescent was the world is flat, God hates everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, if you believe in Jesus, you will not join the great unwashed when the mm-hmm. end comes.
2: Mm-hmm. That's how toxic it had become. And and people became adept at a double thing, but I think deep down we always know. So we we have this story that we're told that God loves us, because certainly that was part of the narrative I was given again and again that God loves you, but there was also the fact that you have to try to hold together this idea that God was actually so angry that he had to kill his own son. Yeah. You know, and that that punishment had to be meted out. And how the heck you are supposed to reconcile the God loves me, I'm made in the image of God with... um, I, I really was deserving of punishment, and that God was so angry he had to kill His own son. You know that. Just, I, I'm amazed how long that narrative kept on. Sort of, it didn't cohere, but it was. It, it maintained yep. the major story, and, and so we have lost it. And
1: it's crazy-making, and I agree. Mm. I mean, as a Catholic, I'm mm. lucky because we never mm. abdicated
3: mm. original blessing. Mm. <laughs> You'll see. The term, the term I was looking for was total depravity. So that, that was... That, and that became the militant version of Christianity mm. in the West because the great thing yeah. about Catholic, the Catholicism that you grew up in was mm. the Catholics just kept, After the Reformation, the Catholics just kept on keeping on. <laughs> yes. The Protestants kept on dividing over, fighting about all sorts of stuff, yeah. but they were <laughs> more militant because they had to sort of butt against what the Catholics were doing. Mm. And so there was this militancy of total depravity and running around telling people that they were (laughs) depraved (laughs) and Mm. that they could be saved from it. So you had to actually destroy the sense of being valued in order to end with the hope of actually restoring a sense of being valued, which you would claim in some future time.
1: And this is where Freud comes in to the Western story Mm. and had to is that that kind of crazy-making theology mm-hmm. had to create a pathology, which oh, was mm-hmm. called neurosis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And he yep. had to declare it. Mm-hmm. Right. But, yeah. Right? This guilt, this kind of guilt, mm-hmm. this guilt that you can't actually explicate, mm-hmm. is going to make you nuts. Yeah,
3: and you and got it anyway. It doesn't matter how good you are being, you're actually still guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and
1: that's crazy-making, mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. he was very clever. He, he, he overstretched it as far as I can see. Because he actually threw the baby out with the bathwater because augustine 's notion of guilt wasn 't this total depravity but this in sense of interiority of knowing that he was misaligned with the true and the good and the beautiful because that 's what he desired, mm. and that the real line, that guilt was not a signification of Either depravity or repression, but misalignment, that's healthy guilt, right? But what Freud did is he did a complete annihilation and pathologised all of guilt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I would like mm-hmm. to bring it back, mm-hmm. actually, <laughs> um, because it will bring back our interiority. Yes,
4: uh,
1: yeah. What yeah. we've done is we've gotten rid of it and now we've got a shame culture, yeah. and a form of th- externalised culture. Yeah. We, we don't have neurosis anymore in the schools. <laughs> we don't. We've got Boundary violations all over the place. Conduct disorders, disorders of character, plus to be personality problems. We don't have neurotics. We've got people exerting their rights into others because there's no self, there's no self home. They're not feeling guilty. They're terrified about the disapproval of others. And so poor old Freud, uh, this is my sort of view of what's happened with the Western Dreaming is kind of thrown out guilt um, where Good, healthy guilt was—it's in the Psalms, you know. It's you and you alone that I've sinned against, O Lord. You know, this is actually not a bad thing because that interior life can realign ourselves to the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, But, but my profession has rushed in and said, "Oh no, it's all neuroses all the way through." Well, as a contemplative Christian and a psychologist, I don't agree.
2: I think it is super important, though, to get that distinction between guilt and shame because a lot of people think of them as the same term. And so when you talk about bringing back guilt, they can have have a different idea. And and I do like Renee Brown's definition of guilt and shame. She says, um, guilt is when you think you've done something wrong or know you've done something wrong. Shame is when you believe you are something wrong. Mm. And that's a really important distinction because I know that when people would talk about guilt to me, and it's a good thing, I would always the red lights would go on because I was conflating guilt and shame, and they are very different things.
1: Yeah, I think I mentioned once in one of the, the, the work that I've done here this week, uh, Delo, the Dalai Lama was in conversation with mm-hmm. with a group of people. He had his interpreter, and somebody was talking about how he hated himself and self hatred and all this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and his interpreter uh, was trying to explain that to the, the Dalai Lama in Tibetan. And he couldn't (laughs) because there's no language for that in Tibet. What does that say about our Western dreaming? This is that total depravity Mm. thing, right? It's like that is not in their metaphysics. It's not in their dreaming. You can understand why people are so attracted to Buddhism, right? Is they want to get themselves away from this self-hatred, right? I'm not convinced that you can by putting a yak's head on a sheep's body. That was um, mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama's concern. I, I agree with Jung. You go back to your tradition mm. and you
3: retell it, which yes. is what I did. Which that's was what we need to do. That, mm-hmm. This is the retelling of the Western dreaming. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's
1: why I'm here. For, yeah. it's <laughs> the only reason why I'm, I'm, I'm here is because I took Jung's advice, mm. right? When, when I had yep. my decent nervous breakdown, I didn't go on to, into another tradition. I stayed yep. and kept on... Drilling that damn well yeah. in my own tradition, and as I drilled it, I met my mother and my father and my nonna and my nonno, right? And my Irish Catholicism and my Italian Catholicism, and then my Western ideas, and then the traditions of of the Western yeah. canonical understanding of the world, you know. Yeah. And I just kept on building that hop, that yeah. that well, and I'm hoping yeah. that I hit the water and Mm. living well which is what the the good Lord uh, mm. promises us but if I dig a couple of wells here and there mm. because I'm now on to the next thing that Instagram or what my friend on the Facebook mm-hmm. feed tells me I can't get to the living source now when I do my centering prayer with my colleagues we have Buddhists who sit with us no problem and they're mm. more interested in talking to me about John of the Cross mm-hmm. and I'm more interested to talk about Theravadan Buddhism, but we can talk, and the reason why we can talk is because I know my tradition, mm. and they want mm. to know mine too. Mm. Do you see the difference? Mm, yes. But it comes at an enormous price, mm. and the price is you've got to die to your own stuff
3: mm. before and then Do, yeah, part of a tradition. Before Dom, you were saying so. What is part of the trick for finding the new telling? I think. Um, something Neil alluded to a while ago contains part of that. Um, how we how we will re, will reframe it. Um, we we've really framed the whole neta- meta narrative around original sin. Mm-hmm. If we start with you know, the original blessing, mm-hmm. I reckon the story will go off in a completely different direction.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think there's obvious proof of that because if we look even culturally outside of the church, the meta and meta- narrative, while it might not be that you're abjectly worthless. It still is. You have to achieve your worth. Yes,
3: yeah, utilitarian. You have to earn worth. Yes. yes. Yeah. But and prove value.
0: You you start at zero. Yeah. And anything you do from there, your points can go up or they can go down. You have to to be a lifter. (laughs) You have to be a lifter
3: and not a leaner. Well, in in the original
1: blessing, God didn't say that that the human was good. He said the human was very good. Mm. Mm. Everything else in creation was good. So Mm. I can kind of relate to God in a little way because I've got these two twin girls that are five, six months old. And when I hold them, there's a crazy delight that if I love them as much as that, and I do, how much does God love me? Mm-hmm. Does that, I mean, if anyone mm. had that experience, it's insane, that kind of love, Because right? mm. those children aren't good to me, my twin girls, they're very good, Yeah. right? So in that love of mm. holding them is a blessing, is what we call uh, benediction, benedictare, mm. which is to speak well of, mm. right? We need more benediction with each other, to speak well of each other, not um, Twitter attack and defence, which is not Mm. to speak well, but Mm. to speak badly. And if we speak badly of each other, we get sick. So benediction isn't just the smells and the bells, it's to speak well of each
4: other. Mm.
0: In a sense, it requires a returning to a a mythic sense of, of imagination that I think many Western people believe we have advanced past. That that's the idea, not that it's a different way of being, but that that was before we knew everything. Now we know it. Mm. Now we know it. We don't need that stuff anymore. And that goes back to how I was mm. taught the Indigenous Dreamtime stories. We mm. don't need that anymore. Mm. We've got, look at what we can tell you, how old this tree is or how old this civilization is. Uh, it's going to require an enormous amount mm. of collective humility, mm. I think you're
3: on the money there, it is a rediscovering imagination, it's, uh, imagination is one of the great human capacities mm. and we really have to really discover what it is to reimagine ourselves, reimagine what society looks like, you know, we, utilitarian has, to, has told us that we're on a trajectory and it's, this is the way it is and this is the way society is and we need to you know, burn coal for it to happen. I mean, there's a whole sort of juggernaut sort of approach that is totally lacking imagination. Yeah.
1: And to do that, we actually need a really good, decent dose of boredom. Um, that would be helpful to get off the screens. you know. <laughs> yeah. Dean, Peter, you were there with um, Looney, I think, was it last year in the Abundant Justice? Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. He celebrates boredom beautifully. Yeah. And he's one of the got people of such great imagination, you know, like, I think he mentioned about the fact that he likes being late for trains, you know, mm-hmm. that yes. so he can wait, <laughs> Do <you> remember that? <laughs> part? Yeah. right? And he waits for the next train and, and there would be enough significant boredom for his imagination to go anywhere. And that lack of the imaginary um, uh, that, that we've got is really a, a, a real problem, mm. you know, and it's because, again, this media mediates. And interferes with our boredom, uh, so that we can't imagine for ourselves. It's the imaginary is done for us, mm. Um, mm. and that's a, that's a. I think you know maybe hopefully with my twin girls I might be able to try and encourage some boredom, and I mean it. You know maybe I'm an evil psychologist, but I think it's a good idea. Like,
3: no, but I mean Einstein came up with his theory of relativity using his imagination, and then backfilled the maths. Yeah. He did yeah. thought experiments. He did, yeah. And mm. then thought, oh. What if... And then and he backfilled the maths. So e, equal, e equals MC squared was him backfilling after doing... sitting at his desk going, wow, I wonder what if... What if this was to move relative to that? And he played mind games.
2: I suspect it's also got something to do with the boundaries that you talk about too. I think when we have no boundaries, creativity suffers. Uh, You see this not so much in little children, I think my theory breaks down there, with little ones you can give them paper and paints and they'll be intensely creative. I find as kids, when you teach kids art, as they get older, if you just give them pens and paper, what you actually get is all the cliches. You start to get things they've seen other people draw, they just mimic. But if you start to put some parameters on something, you, you give them some boundaries, say you're only allowed to use six lines, but they can be whatever kind of line. Suddenly, they break out into all this creative stuff, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how this connects, but I just have a sense that creativity and boundaries, and you were mm. talking about the lack of boundaries, They do some, they go... That hand in hand and somehow maybe in, in some of the, the loss of boundaries that we've had and the loss of shaping stories that we've actually lost some creativity as well.
1: Yes I don't know if anyone's read McGilchrist's Gilchrist's book The Master and the Emissary, he's a neuroscientist um, he talks about that you actually need resistance mm-hmm. in the system for creativity mm-hmm. to occur, right, you need a, nois- a noise in the signal mm-hmm. to actually create mm-hmm. so human beings need the irritant to, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. work. I'm thinking of Jack White from The White Stripes. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. The White Stripes are a, a, a band, I hope you do, I don't know. Maybe I'm too old even to say that, it, being a, a Gen X. Anyway, <laughs> he buys really old guitars and he doesn't set the action up to make them really easy to play yeah. because he likes the resistance of playing against and with the guitar. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about my old Rickenbacker. I've got, an, I'm, I've got a number of guitars, but my favourite guitar is my old Rickenbacker. Because it ain't a guitar; it's my Rickenbacker. And it's really, really hard to play. Mm-hmm. But when you make that thing work, it's like no other guitar. Mm-hmm. And any other instrument I play doesn't have the sound that that guitar does. And that's the sound of our band for the past 20 years, is this damn guitar, mm-hmm. because it's impossible to play. <laughs> and uh, this is what's necessary, this kind of resistance. Boredom is a resistance in mm-hmm. order for a, a, the imaginary to... Mm-hmm. to you know. Charles Taylor talks about this in the secular age with his book, You know, that that imaginary is where we have to, to kind of break out and, and into. And the symbolic world, the metaphysical world and the transcendent world has to be re-examined yep. and ritualised again mm-hmm. because people are starving for it because mm-hmm. you're right the materialist world's flattened things
3: mm-hmm. to bits. In, in his day William Blake said that he thought that industrialisation was a sign of a lack of imagination. <laughs> and That we were turning the planet into a whole bunch of things, green mm-hmm. trees as things that just get in the way mm. um, and that the person of imagination was the one that saw it as a thing of unique beauty mm-hmm. and uh, observed it with a sense of awe.
1: My consulting practice, I work a lot in infrastructure, so I, w- I work a lot with engineers and I, and I say to them, can you please build it beautifully? Mm-hmm. If it's going to be a train station, could you not just do it to specs? Because mm-hmm. if you uglify the train station, you'll uglify the people. Mm-hmm. Is there mm-hmm. any chance you can make a damn good, beautiful train yeah. station, and please? I,
2: I wonder, that that should also be translated over to things like prisons. I was amazed yeah, right. at you know at the time I spent in prisons. We don't actually as have a chaplain, to pay as a chaplain. Oh, as too. a chaplain, yeah, <laughs> 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 <Yeah>, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could have excited the story more. The walls don't all have to be grey, and yet they are. You know, why, why does it have to be so dull and ugly? And, and it's no wonder... I mean, there's plenty of things to depress you in there, but, uh, but that, you know, that lack of looking at things with an eye to beauty... And, and one day when I was there, um, I was watching these women put some strawberry jam on the fence... And there were, there were, lorikeets were coming down and people would gather around just to watch the lorikeets and I thought, yeah, why wouldn't you when everything else looks like this? Here's a moment of beauty and that's transformative.
1: Well, jails were called penitentiaries because they were meant to be penitents and it was a simulacrum of the monastic orders of the Benedictines. The only difference was the Benedictines choose to live in their cells.
4: Mm-hmm. you know they got
1: the model around the wrong way mm-hmm. you know it was they were penitents they mm-hmm. still are benedictines catalicians mm-hmm. and those contemplative orders but but they choose to, to be in their cells but to use that model as a form of punishment mm-hmm. comes from this i think this horrible christianity mm-hmm. if, if i'm being honest yes. with you and yeah. it's really rampant Particularly in America, because it's Puritanism. Yeah, and, Puritanism. And, Absolutely. And we don't examine those dreaming stories. They do have an origin, and you can probably trace them back to Benedict. But for different reasons, right? You can trace Benedict back all the way to the Desert Fathers of the third and fourth centuries, so the cells all the way through Syria and Egypt. But they were intentional cells of contemplation, not. Of, uh,
2: and and isn't I think that's a really big piece of the puzzle here that Puritanism is what has a stranglehold on imagination and freedom. And, and beauty, for that matter, you know. I think it's it's the Puritanism that is in the background saying, no, you people all deserve grey cells, and we're not actually interrogating this. We're not actually thinking about what grace means and, and what transforms human beings and relationships. It's Puritanism that also keeps us, when we talk about lack of imagination, whether it's with the trees and, and seeing them in, in a utilitarian way, but also all of our relationships get... Put out in utilitarian right. ways, That's and right. we're not, and or uh, which has an underlying, pure that is, is the Puritan push to say this is what these things exactly look like. That's and right. we have
1: it. We're living actually in a new Puritanism. Mm-hmm. actually are um, it's mm-hmm. hyper Christianity. Um, Gerard speaks of this. We're not in a post-Christian age. We're, we're at a stage where the supernova is right at its maximum energetic explosion. So what we've got is the elevation of the victim but without grace. Mm-hmm. And you can see it on Twitter and um, uh, Instagram mm-hmm. and all these accounts of merciless
4: mm-hmm.
1: Puritan behavior without mm-hmm. grace, without forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a symptom where the, 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 the Christian story of grace, mm-hmm. again, is losing some of its efficacy, mm-hmm. but the story's still there, but not with the other part of the story. So the, the victim's elevated. Now, look. If you were in Rome uh, prior to Christ's death and resurrection and you said, this is outrageous, I want my day in court. You've absolutely harmed me and I want uh, someone to see my concerns. And then the Roman would say, are you part of Patris Familius? Which means, are you part of one of the Roman families? No. So why are you here? Well, I've been hurt and harmed, and I want to see redress. Are you part of Patris Familius? Which family are you from? I'm not. I'm a slave, or I'm not. I'm actually Macedonian. I'm not Roman. Leave, or we'll kill you. Mm. Right? So, prior to the Christian story, the elevation of the victim wasn't seen as sacred. Mm. That's the big. So wadded the story, it's so powerful. But with the Christian story was the forgiveness on the cross, the grace. So we've still got the story of the elevation of the victim, but the grace story has been, mm-hmm. at this stage, it's been dropped, we're more incivil, we don't have that. Grace is unmerited gift, it's giving something before someone deserves mm-hmm. it. But you don't see it on Twitter and you don't see it on f- Instagram, you don't do it on Facebook. And one mistake that a young person makes could ruin mm. their career mm-hmm. for the rest of their life because the internet doesn't forget. Mm-hmm. And neither, do, neither
3: does abundance. the right-wing media mm. and doesn't forget either. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, that's, or the rabid left, for that matter. Yeah.
2: And that all comes back to, to a over reliance on thinking that punishment and condemnation are sort of the answer or the, the worthy response, and that anything else is letting people off too lightly. It's a lack of understanding of just how difficult grace is, too. <laughs> it's right. that and I used to be involved in restorative practices, and it is the hardest thing in the world. And I'd have parents banging, saying. No, they should be given detention for the rest of their life. Instead of this, seeing it as a soft option, but if you have to face up to the person that you've hurt, look them in the eye, and, and listen to how your actions affected them, it's the toughest thing in the world. And, but equally tough is actually when they forgive you being able to accept that, mm-hmm. because you're faced with yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't keep the illusions going that you were in some way justified. Yeah, and it, But when that free gift is offered, you actually have to, have to confront yourself and let all your own self-illusions fall. And so it's not an easy option, but I think that's sometimes what's maintaining these, this focus on, on punishment and just condemnation that we, and judgment that we like to dish out. Mm. Mm.
4: Mm.
2: So I'm interested, going right back towards the start of this conversation, you
0: spoke about how the self-made person mm-hmm. idea I don't know if the word you used was exhausting, but a synonym of exhausting—that that people mm-hmm. feel exhausted by the the narrative we have—they mm. just feel exhausted, and it's partially because you know you try one avenue, you know maybe I'll, I'll reach the validation through Instagram or my work mm. or this, and it's one to the next to the next, and even if you tick the boxes that are meant to be the validation, mm. it doesn't bring that feeling that 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 sense of meaning, and so there's just this sense of fatigue, and and I feel like it ties in a bit to. Like, that's the definition of what you were saying earlier, Neil, about the West dying for want of a better story, that John Carroll quote which also then ties back to the idea we've explored about re-enchanting the universe. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. it's a universe at the moment in Western society that needs the enchantment again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can't remember where that idea came from. I know you shared it on the podcast I once. I think it was
2: Brueggemann, isn't it? Is that a Brueggemann thing? Uh,
0: Something along those lines. <laughs> but, but it, it has it struck a tone with me and it's stuck in my mind ever since that, that really what people are... I think what it feels like culture's is out for is for, for this thing to be, that we're living to be re-enchanted, mm-hmm. to be more than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. once more. Mm-hmm.
2: How do you think we, how do we re-enchant the universe? I've been thinking a lot about this lately, actually, because I, I had a certain set of answers when we've talked about this before in the podcast, but just, I just now it's, it's all about love. People actually don't believe in love fundamentally, I think. They, they don't have enough faith in it, because of these utilitarian narratives, the enchantment's all gone out, you know, and that people actually don't have that sense of, like, is it Arthur Stace who wrote Eternity all over Sydney? Mm. There's a man mm. who believed in love and, there's, and, and who had a, had a bigger vision, you know, and I think if, and, and something that lasts, and, and I think that's a huge part of the re-enchantment. We, we, we can be looking and seeing where beauty is and, and uh, finding some magic and the miracles in every day. But fundamentally, what's missing when we become so exhausted um, is a lack of love. Now, I think David White, mm. the poet, talked about um, being so exhausted. Um, and he, he was saying, talking to um, a close friend whose name eludes me now, uh, a wise man who said, you know, the cure for exhaustion isn't rest. And I'm trying to think now I've started the story. I think the, the cure <laughs> was was to live wholeheartedly or something along those lines, to lean into life, mm. actually, to pursue... You know, so the idea that we um, can just rest, we can just stop and then we get back on the treadmill again um, is is a very functional kind of narrative mm but actually living wholeheartedly, leaning in and actually seeing love as something that is eternal and finding that everywhere. That's where I think the reenchantment is. Yeah, right.
1: I, I th- actually think the world's already enchanted. It's that we need to stop, breathe and look. It's there, it's always been there. Yeah. And any contemplative practice. I remember saying to our centering, prayer group, that after a while of centering prayer, God showed up in my interior life like a doe that sticks its head out of a forest and says, hello. (laughs) 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 That was it. You know, like like this small small breath, you know, that just blew my mind. Mm. God just... You know, as as gentle and as small as a just out of a forest, a thicket yeah. of all these thoughts and worries. Hello. Mm. And That's, it's just <laughs> it's insane. It's that was that was God, you know, right there.
3: It's interesting you mentioned the Higgs boson um, yeah. before because this week on our pew sheet, I've actually put a, a picture of the Higgs mm-hmm. boson uh, exploding into four muons um, as yeah. part of the dance of the universe. Yeah, right. And the reason I've chosen it for the Sunday, which is um, Reign of Christ, is that I find all of that absolutely enchanting. It is. And for me, the idea of Christ holding all things together, I find in all that subatomic stuff. But it's, a, it's about learning how to see again, and that's where imagination, I think, comes yeah. back. And I, I, remember, I remember when I was doing my PhD in microbiology, um, all of these amazing um, chemical uh, formula that we had to learn and understand in terms of Krebs cycles and turning sunlight into sugar and all that sort of stuff. And I remember having sort of an epiphany moment one day when I realised that this thing that I was studying, like going out of town to study because I had to learn all the different reactions and stuff that all of that was happening in such a tiny little cell along with a whole heap of other processes. And I I actually stopped and had an awestruck moment while Mm. looking at the Krebs cycle. (laughs) Because suddenly it had transfixed me. Rather than something I was trying to master, it actually mastered me.
4: Mm.
3: I was apprehended by this amazing insight and beauty yeah. Yeah. and so I think, you know, I think all of these things, as you say, it's already enchanting, yeah. it's just as, as R.S. Yeah. Thomas says in his poem, the, the bright field, he looked at the field and walked away mm-hmm. and then 20 seconds later realized that yeah. actually what he had just encountered was the pearl of great price and that he should have spent a whole heap of time just looking at that field because it contained essential beauty.
1: It's interesting, Q research shows that f- amongst physical scientists you know, that look at the physical world, between 40 and 50 percent are believers, either agnostic or actual direct believers. Mm-hmm. But in the social sciences, <laughs> it's barely 5 percent, 10 percent. Now, I can, we're yeah. pretty transcendent human beings. Mm-hmm. I am Christocentric. I think we're beautiful. I don't like this idea of, oh, that Western dreaming, you know, we're just a parasite on the planet and we should just mm-hmm. leave. I hate all of that because it's so anthropo-hating or what do you call it, <laughs> you know, like um, that kind of dreaming bothers me. Oh, I, don't think, on that's, I don't think that's and
3: dreaming. I think that's nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. just... Yeah. I, don't we, I don't think we can call it the Western dreaming. Yeah, I think we call it the Western humans
1: nightmare. just are amazing yes. creatures. And, but all of our social scientists won't have a bar of it. But the, mm. but the physical scientists, the biologists, they sneak it in and they see it, they know it. You know, that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. But so are we. Mm-hmm. And we're beautiful for the same reason mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. described yeah. about biology. We're created in God's image. Mm-hmm. And God shows up this way. And particularly the Christian God because of his incarnation. Mm-hmm. It's, we're in the world by virtue of his love. It's just and held up at every nanosecond. Mm -hmm. We don't exist other than him loving us into Mm -hmm. the world. And Mm -hmm. it's just crazy. We don't exist other than the participation of that reality. Mm -hmm. And it's the contemplative dimension of Christianity that's been there since the beginning Mm -hmm. that is the witness of that truth. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, can heal people.
2: Mm -hmm. Makes you wonder if some of the, the nightmares of, of sinfulness and punishment and an angry God have actually crept into the social sciences, that that, that, that haunting has, has been there when they look at the, the human condition. Yeah. yeah, Freud
0: and his mates, probably. Mm. <laughs>
2: well, when you do look
0: at that idea of the West dying for want of a better story, and, and you imagine what the Western world would be like if our collective story was one in which every life was sacred and every thing around us was shining with you know, glory and meaning and beauty how transformed our governments would be, how transformed our societies would be, how transformed our individual lives would be. I suppose that's where you do start to see, Neil just how grounded that this isn't airy-fairy concepts but this is actually grounded in everyone's individual and collective experience of every minute of their life.
1: And Christ isn't done with us yet you know, there's that book from Halleck that isn't the patience of God, but the patience with God. The story's still working, man. You know, just relax. <laughs> if we talk about you know women's participation in the church, you know, what an amazing story! The first evangelist was Mary, you know, Mary Manor. She had to tell Peter, you know, that the Lord had had risen. That's not an accident. It's a reality. God chose the women to profess this. It's going to take time, but it's happening here, right here, right now,
2: with you as a priest. You know, it's
1: brilliant, and it's going to take time, but we're impatient with.
2: I think Saint God's not finished with us yet. It's a beautifully hopeful thing to keep reminding ourselves. Yeah, it's
1: that that wonderful story Mm. of the two Franciscan monks that go to the Smithsonian Institute, right? Mm. And the young monk and the old monk just looking at the dinosaurs, you know. And the young monk goes to the old monk, you know, what was going on? What was God doing when these dinosaurs were walking around? And the old monk just said, "Just watching."
0: With enjoying that. it <laughs> right. enjoying yeah. it yeah mm. so so i suppose then as we move forward into what sometimes can seem dark and scary times you know yeah. with with what's happening in the world the the hope is to reorient to see differently to see the beauty to see the awe instead is that would would you agree with that neil
1: yeah i think, i think that the
0: Maybe not instead, alongside. It's not to say you dismiss that, but alongside.
1: The great Christian story is that there's, there's meaning to suffering. That Suffering isn't just pain, and that suffering is transformative. And it's transformative where the false self is relativized, or even if you want to participate completely, is annihilated. And then what emerges is the true self. And the true self in the Christian narrative is Christ in I. So Thomas Merton said something that was really helpful for me he said that I don't have to justify myself I'm hidden in Christ I thought I'll have that (laughs) (laughs) you know that's nice I'm a mystery to myself Christ is the mystery in me and so I don't have to justify myself Christ Mm. is the project so you know the Hesychasts talk about those three movements of of, um, um, kenosis the emptying of the self and then the perichoresis which is the dance of the three persons right the participation in the birth death descent into hell and resurrection but the final thing that i like about that tradition is theosis is to become like god not god but to become like him or in his image because that's what you were from the foundations of the world anyway because before your mother knitted you in your womb i knew you it's in the scripture it's there you're already loved insanely before you were born Now, if I can do that to my twins now, surely God's been doing that since creation for you, you, and you. But it has to be the interior encounter of that God to know it to be true. It's love that transforms us. And to know that as the beginning, middle, and end of our lives means that we can step out into the world and say, it's good, and it's loved, and it's true, and it's beautiful, and we're going to be okay." That's the Christian story, hope in things unseen. Because if we can't, if we see it, it's not hope, it's evidence. And that's not what Christ is looking for. He's looking for faith.
0: So do you have hope that this story of sacredness and love and beauty and awe and wonder will become the Western dreaming in time?
1: I I see it. I see it in little bits and pieces, right? Because I, I, I think, you know, G.K. Chesterton said seven times the critics said that the church was going to the dogs and seven times the dogs died. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's right. The church will survive it. I mean, the church, you know, all of of the the people Mm -hmm. of God because we have Christ and and its faith in in the story of the the Paschal Mystery and and our willing participation in that reality Mm -hmm. will make it be so compellingly incarnational as it's always been, mm. that people will want what you've got, mm. right? You know, when, when I talk to some of the older, not actually all of them, but you know, some of the monks in Unorcia, you know, um, some of those old monks, I'm just thinking of, you know, the, 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 um, Father Paulino, you know, he was 92, 93 years of age, he was one of the last of the, the Spanish monks there. And um, he used to walk on crutches because at 75 years of age, he fell off his um, quad bike when he was picking up the olives and broke his leg. And he reset it himself and didn't do it properly. Now, that man, was he fully incarnated Christ. He left his home at 14 and had a life of service. All the other monks around him revered him. Because he was the humblest, most beautiful man in that community. Do you know what I mean? It's there. Mm. There are saints amongst us. Mm. I've met them and they look like nothing that you think unless you've got the eyes of seeing it. Some of the nuns I've met are saints, remarkable people who've devoted their entire lives to Christ. And they are joyful and they're happy and they have the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> it's there because God doesn't deny us. Mm. Do you know if you if you seek him, he will give it, but it's gonna hurt. But what's given is overflowing abundance and you see it in other people mm-hmm. who've gone further down the way. Mm-hmm. And that's how Christianity has always survived. You know?
0: And uh, Sue and Peter, and wrapping up, what, what is it that gives you both hope about the future of the, the Western dreaming, the Western meta-narrative as we go forward?
3: Um, For me, it is that um, Paschal cycle of death, Holy Saturday and resurrection. And I just see that we're in the bit of that cycle that we'd rather not be because everyone wants to be on Easter. Everyone wants the chocolate. um, (laughs) But I, I, I actually think that the story is so deep and so strong that the resurrection will come and our role is to be, all as always, is to be faithful and to love ferociously, particularly our enemies.
2: Yeah, yeah. love and, and, and forgiveness and, and, and living into the story, that same Paschal story I would say is true but I'd probably also just add that um, a wildness in the world Neil you said something this morning I think that really um, struck me there there is a wildness and things we can only imagine what we've already experienced we lack the imagination sometimes to to think that there could be something that we haven't already experienced but what gives me hope is that Thing every so often, something comes up that is totally new, and you go, "There's the spirit. The spirit's acting in this wild and unexpected way." Um, and what the way I would script my life, or the way I would script the church's life, is not the way that the spirit is doing it. And that gives me immense hope. Lovely. Well, uh, thank you so much,
0: Sue and Peter. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you so much to everyone who's come along to watch the podcast or, I guess, sit in, listen to the podcast. I'm not sure what the correct term is there. Um, but it's been a great uh, great joy to be here with all of you tonight. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly. <laughs>